listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast, your digital download of the best of the trade union movement, with me, Simon Sapper, and the Unions 21 Executive Director, Becky Wright. Well, 2020 already feels like it's been around quite a while, but what do you think, Becky, the main challenges facing the union movement are in this new year? Well, 2020 is bringing lots of changes for unions. And so we went out to ask James Morris from Edelman about what the challenges for unions politically could be and how we can think about how we work, where we work and how we can be successful in this new government. Uh, James was good enough to write a blog on the subject of the challenges facing the trade union movement, which you can find on our website, www.unions21.org.uk. And... He was good enough also to speak at our masterclass on the same subject held just recently in London. James's day job, by the way, is Managing Director of the Edelman's Communication and PR company. James quickly warmed to his theme that for most people, actually, things are OK. Hope you enjoy. You know, it is in a different place to where it was 10 years ago. So they're massive, massive problems. But for the average person, employment rates are highest it's ever been. Wages are rising in real terms, which is not something that people have been used to for a while. We've got to some political stability after a period of ridiculous political turmoil. Things don't look that bad, particularly if they look at their lives. If they look at, like, they don't trust business, they don't trust government, they don't trust the media, um, they don't really trust NGOs. So there's been a massive fall in trust in NGOs over the last four or five years which is related to a whole range of things, from chugging, like people in the street stopping you and asking you for money, like that, quite aggressive fundraising, scandals around how old people, you know, people, how fundraising was done with older people, the Oxfam, Haiti stuff, like all of that, so trust in NGOs. So if you look at like the institutions in society, they're very low levels of trust, actually. But if people think about their lives, for the average person, it's a bit better than it was. And... Schools are like, budgets are really stretched, but they're actually turning out quite good results, so they're performing better. And, and then if you think about a different dimensions, that's mainly kind of economic and public services. If you think of a different dimension, which is cultural, you know, Windrush, removing the refugee protections in the Brexit bill. Um, I was you know, looking on Twitter about you know, a gay couple that have been attacked in public somewhere. You know, all this stuff still happens massively. However, concern about immigration is falling. It's been falling since before Brexit, it's continued to fall. It's the lowest level it's been for a very long time. If you look at the UK versus other countries, we're one of the most tolerant countries in Europe. So again, the like, you can find massive problems, but actually, for most people, things are pretty right. And even if you look at something like support for LGBT rights, support for gay marriage, a majority of centre-right people support gay marriage, for example. So there's been a kind of mainstreaming of um, pretty liberal positions, things that things that 20 years ago no politician would have suggested are now not just the law, but very broadly accepted. So I say all that because it is really common and tempting <coughs> when running a campaign on an issue to just act like everything's awful and be very miserableist. And if you're trying to engage with people who have that point of view, that's fine, like you're reflecting their point of view. But if you're trying to engage with the average person, whoever that is, that is just isn't their view. Some things are good, some things are bad. It's not all awful, it's complicated, and I don't really care because I'm getting on with my life. 
And I think it's really important to think about that. And without getting into too much history, that is not, that's not been, there's not been a lot of optimism in kind of progressive campaigning for a while. I think one interesting exception is um, Extinction Rebellion, where there is definitely like, uh, like, oh my God, we're all going to be fried element to it. But if you actually went, if you went to any of the like events, you went to Trafalgar, walked through Trafalgar Square while they were occupying it, it was lovely. <laughs> it was really nice. Um, that that was actually quite a powerful way of engaging with the opinion formers walking through Trafalgar Square because it wasn't an intimidating, menacing, aggressive march. It was um, it was positive. So I think when you're campaigning to try and correct something going wrong like over-reliance on food banks or welfare cuts that are being applied in ways that have really dreadful consequences, it is tempting to let anger and negativity be the dominant emotion, and that will immediately alienate most average people. If you don't care about most average people, that's fine. But if the campaign is trying to go more mass, you've just got to get that, that calibration right between negativity and positivity. The second thing I just want to touch on is politics. We have a Tory government. They are going to be a Tory government. Like, there's differences in the way they're going to behave to where the previous governments behaved, but it clearly will be very different to a Labour government, either the one that was proposed at the last election or the last Labour government we had. That is, for the kinds of campaigns that people in this room will be running, probably on balance unhelpful in almost every case, but maybe not all. There are going to be big issues. We'll talk about Brexit in a bit, but the government is saying they want to be able to diverge significantly from the EU's labour standards and others, they will not be diverging to make them higher. So that is going to create a load of issues. So that's where we are. But labour doesn't matter. Not like getting labour to adopt a position only matters if that might then lead to some policy change. So comfortable and easier as it is to engage with the Labour Party, it, what is the actual value on that hour of your time? Like it might be useful, but you've just got to like think through how is that backbencher then going to do something that leads to something that actually makes something happen. So that's just a fact, and that's probably a fact for five years, at least. And the people that do matter, local government, central government, devolved, author devolved government, self-organising campaigns, people who can do stuff themselves, like those, it's much, those have power and so can do stuff, and the Labour Party doesn't have power nationally, so basically can't do stuff. It's a slight oversimplification, but that is also just a fact. So you've just got to think about how we change the way we behave in that context. You may not need to change. Overall, the movement needs to change. Second thing is, and this is where it gets a bit more positive, in my view, it, a big majority gives the government two, two things that are helpful. One is... They, they know that they're likely to last quite a long time, and when they go into the next election, they'll have a record to run on. So if they're actually screwing something up that is harmful, that is bad for them. That wasn't a problem over the last three years, because ne it was never going to matter, but the election was always going to come before the screw-up mattered. But now, if they are applying welfare sanctions in a way that's going to like systematically discriminate against women in key seats. Well, that's going to, they'll, they'll have a chance to tick a box that says that. So the, they've got a much longer term interest in impact, which means that substantive campaigns on real issues can have effect. 
The second thing is they've got a big majority, not a small majority, so you don't need Arlene Foster to say okay before you can do anything, and you don't need Peter Bone or any of those people to agree. There's a big cohort of new MPs who are loyal to the Prime Minister and will give him a lot of latitude to do a lot of stuff. So they've got a lot more political room for manoeuvre away from the ideological fixations of the Conservative Party and the Democratic Unionists to do stuff that is helpful for them in the long term. Their electoral incentives broadly align with what is in the interests of average people. So there's a lot more room for them to respond. They don't, they, the flip side is you don't, they don't need to listen to anyone because like, they're going to win every vote anyway. So they don't actually... Previously, if you somehow got the ERG to support your position, then they would, the government would support it. But that would be unlikely. But there is no one that is a linchpin that holds power. You've got to persuade. But then there's a lot more they can be persuaded about. The shift in political geography also matters because they are going to have to worry about a load of places that they did not electorally have to worry about before. And that, uh, yeah, I don't know what the geographic distribution of members is, and I'm sure it's different from union to union, but um, that is also potentially quite helpful. So, Labour doesn't matter. Institutions with power matter. Big majority plus long-term interests means there's actually more responsiveness potentially to campaigns. So that brings us to the next thing, which is issues. There is a perception that this is like a catastrophically divided country. We're in two tribes, leavers and remainers. We never talk to each other and we all hate each other. Um, that's just not, that is not right. That is true of Twitter. And it is quite important not to mistake Twitter for the country. Labour won Twitter by about 30 points. Like if you look at people who tweet, Labour's about 30 points ahead. It has also got way more activists on either end most and and the like ridiculous speed of news on there means that if you don't log in in like six hours you might not know you might not understand something that everyone else understands that will never ever penetrate a normal person's home so really important not to treat that treat that as like a good measure of anything apart from what apart from like activist opinion and what twitterers think it is good for that obviously but not what what public opinion looks like the reason why get Brexit done was a good slogan is because everyone who voted leave plus half the people who voted remain last time wanted to get Brexit done. There are not many remainers now, as in people who now think we should remain in the EU. Most people were like, this is what we've got in the focus groups, this is boring, can we do something else now, was, was the dominant opinion. And we voted on it, we decided to do it, so like every other time we vote on something and we decide on something, we should do it. And the efforts to point out that was a bit more complicated just failed. So failed in advance of the referendum, failed after the referendum, that failed. And so people were like, just why haven't they done it yet? Or some people had done it, it was a mess. So most people do not live their life through the lens of lever versus remainer. It's just not, they just don't think about it at all. And we are pretty united, actually. So in, the, in this trust survey we just did, we found 80% of people say top priority should be health and social care, um, the environment, job security, uh, family time, although that is much more complicated. So one of the problems with the four-day week proposal, for example, is that a lot of people would say, said two things. A, 
well, that's just not going to happen. Like, they're not going to just give me a day off without paying me less. And B, if they would pay me the same amount for four days, I still want to do five days. I'll just get a 20% pay rise. I don't want I don't want another day at home. I just want, I'd rather have a pay rise. So the family time thing is a, is a bit complicated. <coughs> but we are pretty united on what is important. Health and social care, uh, job security, the environment is a big sort of uniting issue. And, and the other thing is we, there's, there's a value that is very broadly shared and it is not distributional justice, important as that is, it is contributory justice, as in people who put in should get out. And if you basically say, and it, that doesn't mean people who work, doesn't mean people who have a job should get more, it means people who contribute should get out, whether your contribution is work, childcare, looking after a parent, volunteering in your local community, what, whatever it is, but like, if you put effort in, it should be rewarded. That is a very uniting value left and right. Distributional justice has more bounds around it. Like no one thinks people should be sleeping in the street outside my office, but they also are—they're worried about moral hazard, or they wouldn't say it like that. Like they want to make sure that there's incentives for doing well and that there aren't free riders and so forth. So on issues, we're pretty united. Brexit is not the big dividing thing, but when we talk about Brexit, it is very divisive, and it's going to be more so, or just as much, because God knows what, how the debate will play out. We've got all these issues coming up around the nature of the trade deals we strike. What is the future relationship with the EU? What are the protections that are written into the UK law? How, so that is that is going to be divisive and complicated, and that is a place. Like if you're thinking about, if you're talking about Brexit, it is worth thinking about us as being divided. If you're talking about anything else, it's much better to think of us as being united than divided. The final sort of broad campaign thing before we start thinking about the future is just campaign tactics. <coughs> My experience of how to get government to do things is that newspapers are better than meetings. As in, if something's in the Daily Mail or the Sun or uh, the Telegraph or probably not the Guardian, although it can help, Mirror can help a bit, that is going to go onto someone's desk in the morning and you don't have to do anything. If your, ca if your influencing tactic is to try and explain to someone something, like rationally, why this is better than that, it's a much slower mechanism. So I think it is, even though newspaper consumption is falling dramatically, most people who read newspapers, I think, have cutting services these days. Like I went to get one at the weekend, and I went to two news agents, and it turned out they weren't news agents, they didn't sell newspapers anymore. Um, I had to go to a third one. A third one, finally, and definitely when I moved in three years ago, they were news agents, and they had news in them, but they don't. Uh, so newspapers are dying as a piece of paper but they still have quite a lot of impact in government. So I think so. embedding media relations into campaigning tactics is actually really important still. As I just said, Twitter is weird, but it is really good for activists. It's not that good. It's good for activists. It's good for journalists. So when we use it for our clients, in general, those are the groups we're trying to reach. Um, and because journalists don't ever put their phone down, as far as I can tell, you can actually hit people really, really quickly with interesting stuff and get them engaged. So it's powerful for that. It's not powerful for reaching normal people. If you want to reach normal people, Facebook is good, but it's for older people. Like, anyone's got kids, so that's not their thing anymore. Instagram, TikTok. T TikTok is a social media platform where you, it's all video. People post these like meme-based, structured 15-second videos of them doing something silly. But you can also use it to, to get a bit of thought leadership across. So UK and the Changing EU did one yesterday about what is the remaining set of issues that EU needs to organise, and they did a dance like that. So 
It's actually quite powerful. It's quite good. Um, and the filters are great. So, digital, basically, digital is a really important, important way of reaching out. So, so what I would say there is just fit the tactics to the objective. Don't start with, this is a policy objective, civil servant, civil servant, four-month wait for meeting with minister, agree that it's all very interesting, civil servant, nothing, and <laughs> like, be willing to, to find new ways to make some noise. Final thing is what happens next. And there are a few things just to touch on. One is there's going to be a government reshuffle after Brexit. I think a lot of the sort of initial complete overhaul of government stuff has sort of gone. But that, that isn't happening. But as far as we can tell, we'll know in a week or two. But it doesn't seem like that level of kind of huge reorganisation is going to happen. Um, there will be some significant reorganisation. There is sort of big question marks about what the nature of Bayes is, what's, who's responsible for business policy and in what ways, who's responsible for infrastructure. Um, and that is with a view to strengthening business. But, but in the government's mind, that, that doesn't mean like maximising profitability or maximising return to shareholders. It does mean sort of spreading growth around the country and helping improve kind of employment and quality of jobs that we have around the country and skills. Like that's what they think is in their interests. They, ha they believe it will have a knock-on effect in terms of profitability and so on. But they're not, it's not like, um, they're not acting <coughs> like they're of the view that a company's only responsibility is to maximise its profits, which is the Milton Friedman sort of view. That they just aren't. Lots of caveats around that. That is not the way they're acting. So I'm not saying that there aren't some quite strong ideological views within government. But the overall drift is is to be much more flexible and, and interventionist than um, than the right of the Conservative Party would like. Um, there are also some sort of ministers and others who are on their way up who are potentially worth sort of thinking about. Rishi Sunak, a guy called Ollie Dowden, there are some others who are like, well, we'll see in reshuffle in a couple of weeks, so let's see if they get bigger roles or not. Second thing is, right, who's the next Labour leader going to be and will they be the Labour leader in 2019? It's a long, long time, four years, and I think it will be much more related to performance than has been the case in the past. And we won't, I don't think, have the permanent sort of threat of immediate election that was a bit of a restraint. So there's no guarantee that they will still be there. But that will make a difference to the, like the, the, their ability. Oh, so this is another good tactical thing. When ministers, ministers might not be thinking about all your issues and whatever your campaign is on, but if they're going to go into a, do an interview, they need to be prepared to answer any question. So if they, so the media handlers will prep them with difficult questions. If in that media prep session, they don't have a good answer to a difficult question, someone gets told to go and sort it out, uh, like, as in come up with a good answer. And so policy can shift because <coughs> of interviews and not because of the actual interview that actually happens, but because in the prep session they were like, we can't say that, like, that sounds ridiculous. Okay, they've really got a point. So what does that mean for a, from a campaign point of view? It means actually trying to make sure that sort of media-focused special advisors know what the really tricky questions are, as long as they're really, really tricky. 
Right? As long as the answer to them has to be doing something, that changing policy, that can really help you like get a, a, a something done. And the second thing is being close to interview producers and the broadcast media or journalists to feed them difficult questions, because then they will they will ask the question. You know, they they have a fact they've got like five minutes and a thousand questions. So there's no guarantee they'll do it. But if they if someone gets caught in a difficult position, that can help get stuff done. I don't know how I got to that. But so, who will the next Labour leader be? Will they still be there in 2019? Will the Parliament last that long? Uh, there's quite likely to be some sort of change to the fixture. I don't think we're going to have regular December elections. So it isn't... I think they will change something, at least. And then Brexit is... Well, there's a bit of a lull now. But um, there, there is this June deadline for if the UK wants to extend the transition period, it's supposed to give the EU notice in June. Um, the government has said we will not be extending the transition period and we will not be giving the EU notice in June. It has also set out a series of positions that are incompatible with the EU's red lines. So they will not ask for an extension in June. There will be a little bit of sort of, oh my God, like we're going to fall off a cliff at the end of the year because there will be no transition period uh, provisions in place. Um, my sense is the government's bet is that um, they they feel pretty confident they'll be able to get to something pretty like quite a thin deal, but a deal. And if they can't, politics will mean that you'll be able to get the extension after the deadline. So I wouldn't worry too much in June, uh, but it, but like November December will be really fraught, and the nature of that makes a big difference as does like the future trade relationships and future trade deals. The government says it wants to strike. This week, the government said we're going to introduce this uh, big tax on big tech companies, and the US have said, oh, fine, then we'll have a tax on your car companies. <coughs> Talk about what that means. But um, so, like, that, it's not obvious how they get to trade deals of any significance in time to repair the, the economic damage that would come from a, a, a very thin deal with the EU. So, in summary, don't be miserable, <laughs> uh, because for most people, things are like not that bad. So if you, want to, if you want to resonate with them, just think about how we can be positive. Focus on the people with power, so that is not the UK Labour Party at national level. Campaign on issues that are really, like, where there's a real substantive thing that matters, and then you've got a pretty good chance of influencing policy because their incentives for the next couple of years align around delivering positive long-term impacts, and their ideological flexibility is an opportunity, not a problem. Don't think we're all divided, we're not. Think about like contribution, putting in and getting out, and fairness, and think about health and environment and all these other uniting issues. Tactically, think about how to use the media sort of cleverly to drive the agenda that you want, and think about how you use social media segmented by your target audience. And don't think that like a lot of retweets means that, it, that something has happened. And then thinking about the future, this reshuffle in a couple of weeks is going to be pretty significant, so it's worth, worth seeing what happens there. It is worth... Brexit's going to be very hard to influence, but it's going to be very significant, so it is worth thinking about the details of that in relation to the specific agendas that you're pursuing. And uh, it is probably a safe bet that you've got four years before another election, uh, at least. So <coughs> it is worth getting these things right early, because... That just is the way the world is for quite a considerable period of time. And I'll stop there. Thanks.
very much, James. Open the floor to questions, reflections. As you can imagine, James's contribution <laughs> stimulated lots of questions from the floor. Pick of the bunch was this first one from Tom Jones of Thompson Solicitors, followed by Paul Day from the Pharmacist Defence Association Union. The significance or otherwise of the, of the new MPs who broke the, you know, bust the red wall, yep. whatever, what is their influence, what is the use of targeting them to make change? Yeah, they are... They've formed up this sort of group that like will will meet together and and uh, uh, act together in Parliament and discuss common issues that they have. There, there is a fundamental shift in political geography that means the government has to respond to those places, uh, and that wasn't true previously. So that is a big shift because if they don't win in those places, they would have to repay, you know, make up for that by either doing much better in Scotland, uh, which is possible because of the way nationalism is probably going to go over the next few years or winning more seats in other parts of England that are like those places. So, so I think that it is really fundamental. Those, it's more that those, pe but those people owe a lot of loyalty to the Prime Minister and the government. So they are not at all likely to, be to go out and campaign against the government to achieve something. They're much more likely to use what they know about what is in their political interests in their area to influence internally. Um, so equipping them with the ability to do that makes sense. Expecting them to like to, to like be semi-independent is extremely implausible. And it's the uh, and as people, they're actually quite a divert. Like some of them are quite right wing, some of them are not that right wing. They've got quite a mix of views. They've all signed up to this Brexit pledge. So they're not. It's not like a cohesive match group of individuals. It's more the electoral geography, which Number Ten is conscious of too. The Tories won in every. So you can segment class in so many different ways. But if you do it in the like A B C one C two D way, which is not a brilliant way of doing it, the Tories won in every one of those segments. If they start doing worse among C twos, like work, like uh, unskilled manual workers. They would need to do much better again amongst middle class people to compensate, but the cultural shift amongst middle class people is towards li sort of liberalism and you know a set of m values I'll describe as metropolitan, even though they're not particularly town related. That make it implausible that they'll those groups will swing back to the Tories. So so they they are that's why they're not, one particular reason why they're not left. Like the Tories need those people. A lot of them are older, so if you do it by age. It's a lot of older working class people, not younger working class people, and that leads to a different set of issues. But insofar as you, your issue connects with that group, that is really helpful. That is really helpful. And you're right that it's not just geography, because their goal is to win more places like that, not just hold on to ones I've got. Two things. I think it's interesting at the beginning of your, your, your talk, you talked about sort of happiness and people feeling better off. And I think it's a real challenge for us, I take your view of the narrative, because like, you know, life we know is about expectation management. Mm. And you know, maybe if Australia's only on fire every other year, it's not as bad that mm -hmm. so we have to worry about climate change. Mainly if we only lose maternity rights and you know, a few other bits from Brexit, maybe it's not as bad. So. Like, which way do we go on expectation management? Because if we continue to say, oh, because of Brexit, everything will be absolutely bad and this is a bad thing, and it is only partly bad, 
where does Joe Pumley go in their mindset? I think that's a challenge for us. The other thing is, I'm intrigued on to what degree we as a union movement should kind of echo that red wall uh, scenario. So like when we did our recognition campaign for Boots, the same morning I published a story on the Socialist Health Alliance uh, Association webpage and on Conservative Home, because we said we've got to reach people everywhere. And for fun, I'm a local union thing, because I'm that sort of geek. And um, I was looking the other day, you know, there is you know, a Green Party, a Lib Dem Party, certainly a Tory equivalent of Labour unions. And should, you know, do we want those things, particularly obviously the Tory one, to prosper? Do we want to kind of fully embrace whether it's called blue workers, or yeah. Tory workers, Tory workers, and you know blue collar Tories, whatever it's called. Do we, as a movement, want to embrace that organisation so that it grows? And just like the people of um, wherever in the north are saying, now you're responsible for us, and that we voted for you, you should care about us. Should we, as a union movement, be saying, now that you're, you know, our people voted for you because they did? That's the fact. Should you be embracing them? And what yeah. So my view on the second one is basically yes, because if the goal is out is achieving something, and that is potentially an influential group that can help you achieve it, the the other option is wait four years, and then hope you win an election that probably won't be won, like you know fifty fifty at best, and if you don't, then it's another four years, or five years, and then you hope again. So that that's not a very that doesn't seem very sensible for, from the point of view of a member because I would have thought the typical member is not very party political, not very ideological. I know that's different for activists and it's different for leadership and it doesn't reflect the history. And like, so I'm not at all underestimating how challenging that is, but like, I, I definitely don't want to lose maternity rights. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't really think the like 100-year-old history coupled with the sort of habits and comfort of leadership ought to dramatically affect our ability to influence those kinds of things. So I would say that, that actually finding the right ways to engage. Now, I don't know what those specific groups actually do or think or want. So uh, if they're like... Well, they don't know what they think. I, no, mean, well, I mean, I would say I've had conversations with the, the Tory workers, yeah, and I've come, across, I've come away thinking... I'm not sure how much influence you have. I think it's interesting to think about actually who has influence over everybody and to keep these people on our radar and to not necessarily exclude them. But I, I would say to what extent do they have influence? Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing that I'm from a campaigning point of view, which I think James had echoed is, I mean, it's like every, get on with everybody and then if, if they're useful, then they're useful. Mm. Yeah. But not don't always think they'll always be useful, which sounds really quite mm. bad, doesn't it? But it's true. Yeah. Like not everybody's going to be good for any. You know, I don't go to a physio when I really need to see a dentist. <laughs> Sorry, I don't yeah. know where that. I'm trying to hand it to the audience. That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, uh, um, expectation management is a great question. So I think you probably have to not worry about expectation management and instead worry about outcomes. Like, if, if being a doom-monger will make it a bit less bad, 
at a political cost down the line, it's still probably worth making it a bit less bad. The challenge is that I'm not sure being a doom-monger does make it that much less bad because I don't think that at that, like, <coughs> this is all awful is persuading it. I mean, we've tried it for a really long time now and it's not been very effective. So I think it probably is better on balance to look at Brexit from the point of view of how do we make Brexit as effective as possible? Well, one way to make Brexit really work is to make sure that people still have access to maternity rights or people have better maternity rights. Or, like, it's the same thing, it's just positively framed. The way to make Brexit work is to make sure that we can get just the right talent we need. And that's why we need... You won't say this, but I'm just trying to reflect free movement. A market-based mechanism that allows the right talent to come into the country. Well, that's what we got now, actually. So maybe, maybe, it's, maybe you do want to positively frame things rather than negatively frame things, um, but not for expectation management reasons, but for efficacy reasons. So, wow, what does this new landscape mean for unions? What can we think about? I mean, I think James covered all of those topics really well and it was very interesting to hear his take as somebody who is union friendly but not part of our kind of wider everyday world. There are a few things that I think are really important to highlight. The first one is this kind of general mood of buoyancy around like tolerance within society, uh, responses to positive campaigns for change uh, and an interest in health and social care, job security and the environment. That it might actually bring us more chances to influence in some ways. The government will be thinking long term. Be interesting to see kind of who the uh, Prime Minister puts around him and what their interests are in the next reshuffle. The next thing is to think about devolution and local councils. And while Labour might not hold sway in the House, there is opportunity to work with different uh, councils and mayors to influence local decisions and show new ways of working. And so as unions, we might need to be thinking about how do we do that? How do we influence on a local level more effectively, as well as kind of doing the usual stuff over in the Houses of Commons? But I think that also brings round a different idea around our campaign tactics and the idea that traditional meetings with civil servants may need to park, uh, be parked and for us to think about raising awareness over social media and other kinds of channels, targeting audiences and measuring those impacts. I thought in his uh, summation, James suggested reaching a wider community of supporters by working with organisations which cover similar issues, at the same time demonstrating the value of trade unions. I think there is a massive challenge for unions going forward in this new government. I'm not saying we've got all the answers, but it's definitely time for us to think about what we're doing and how effective we can be. So if you want to hear more about what Unions 21 is doing, sign up to our newsletter. Go over to unions21.org.uk and also tell us what you think. Email us at info at unions21.org.uk. You can tweet us at Unions 21. Let us know some of the challenges you're facing in your work and we'll see if we can cover it. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. Our sound recordist was Henry Skews. It was a Makes You Think production, and our music 
is by the Computer Music All-Stars on a Creative Commons.